Blog Talk Radio. Introducing in the red corner, American Tennis! And introducing in the blue corner, your host for American Tennis, Mr. Chuck Reese. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. Thank you for listening, and welcome once again to American Tennis. Listen, I am so, so sorry that uh, we had some technical problems last week, and the show just sort of bleeped out, so we're behind a week, but that's okay. You know, we're catching up. We're back on track here, and a lot of good issues to cover and things, but anyhow, just thanks for listening in. And um, we, we really want every week to express that, folks, we need you out there to stand up and to speak out for our game of American tennis. Our game of tennis is under assault right now. I, I, it is being hijacked in so many different ways by those folks who really believe that because they got a computer and we got smart all of a sudden that now – we can change things around, and oh boy, we are going to just fix it right up. And uh, we wish everybody in the world could be just like us. Everybody in the world would want to be like me if only they knew how, and they're trying to educate us. Today we're going to talk about the worst thing you could ever do in motivating a young person. Motivating anybody in trying to get their heart is to mandate over-regulate, and, and basically just present a one-way pathway of doing things. We need everyone to be developing excellence through an express way of ideas, through a free way of how we're going to do it. Just put the competition out there and cut us loose so we can do it the old-fashioned American way. So uh, this is American Tennis, and this is the way we do things, and we will have lots and lots of champions if we will just get the handcuffs off and get, get the cookie cutter out of our way so that we can go go out and do this. Um, had a couple things happen this week, and just so aggravating, and my daughter is, uh, I'll just give you the short version of this one, 
My daughter's 10, and I've been teaching her all along how to play tennis. And, <laughs> and guess what? Uh, the little community director uh, tennis people and the little girls came over, and they wanted to play on their league tennis. So I said, sure, no harm here. And you all know what I'm going to say here if you've got children. So I go, sure. I called my, my wife, called, and I said, yeah, yeah, let's sign her up. That's fine. My wife calls back like a week ago fr- Friday and says, uh, well, we've got to join the USTA if she's going to play. I, whoa, 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 what? I said, I, I do not want my name or my children's names on any of those daggone farms of the USDA, those daggone guys, all they want is a database of names, and they start you when you're 10 years old, and then they will start hounding you for money the rest of your life. And I said, you know, why they? Well, the only reason they do they do do this is because they can do it. They get their database and numbers. So she goes, well, she wants to play. I, I said, I I know, and but you, honey, I, you know I understand, feel about this. Um, Absolutely, positively, every good thing that you do will ultimately get diluted, polluted, prostituted if we allow other people to interfere with the rearing of our children. And these systems that the USTA put in there, are uh, they're done by centralized government of the USTA. They're done by these guys who really, uh, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't have them teaching my kids for anything in the world. Some of them are, my golly, you know where I'm coming from with that one. And you coaches out there listening, it's not that they're bad people. It's not that they're not that good at what they do, but they're cookie-cutter performers in the kitchen. They will go by the recipe, and they'll go by the set formula, but they want a uh, certain... Uh, gosh, a certain certified, documented, um, governmental-controlled, socialistic type of outcome for your children. You know, and why they're just afraid. Somebody's going to make a mistake with a grip on teaching these 10-and-under kids? I don't think so. I think we had a lot more champions before these guys stuck their nose in it. So my my program today... (laughs) is if you want to motivate, don't overregulate. Never mandate. Never mandate either. So here we go. We've got to talk about the motivation of our children. Yeah, it's okay to have programs out there. In the end, if we can uh, get my – I don't think – I think I'll put her in there under assumed name or something. I, I don't want my name associated with those guys. And uh, I've <laughs> I've had experience for 45 years, and – uh not much good has come about from from that group, and uh, so let's see what are we going to do. Don't motive if you want to motivate, don't overregulate. Well, you can't regulate kids even one on one, even as parents. We can we can teach them through good fundamentals. We could put down guide guidelines, and we absolutely have to have the parameters for their learning. But we know best. We know better than a centralized way of teaching a centralized government. So uh, last night I was at my son's baseball practice, and 
a uh, lady walks up and she says, well, we think your son's pretty motivated, but we can't get, I can't get our son motivated. I said, well, you're seeing some of the good stuff. I mean, we fight twice a week on my wife and I, not fight, but we scrap it out trying to figure out how to get him to learn, learn. It's not something that is innate and something that's there, but learn how to be motivated for certain things. And as parents, we know that. We know that our children are not born doing all of the right things. Now, some children are just easier than others. Some, some uh, you talk to them once and they, they get it and they do it. Others, takes two or three or four times to try to show them the right way and they do it and then they will have a couple mess ups and then some will mess up over and over and over and over and over again and we have to forgive them 70 times 7 and keep plugging away as a parent or as a coach until their behavior, their behavior, not our, their behavior becomes what it needs to be but it's their ownership, their pathway, their behavior, their unique tennis game, their way of doing things, their way of doing things. Now, the structure and the parameter, we, of course, look, folks, I'm not bailing out on that. We need that. But the worst thing we could do is handcuff our youngsters by overregulation. So we want to talk about this. And um, let me finish that story, really, with that the lady uh, last night or the night before But just said look ma'am All of us are in the same boat And I said uh, Children have to be Taught and they have to learn The hard way, the easier way But it takes, they have to learn It's their lives The worst thing we could do is make them little robots Or to have no structure Is bad as well If we just completely remove the structure You get like a thoroughbred racehorse That never ends up getting to the track or I say a pedigree dog that never gets housebroken. Boy, that's a, that's a different thought there. Uh, just popped into my head there, but I think of a pedigree dog. There's lots of them out there that don't get housebroken. We have a lot of talented people out there that absolutely positively never learn to do the right things. And uh, they're lazy. A lot of talented people are lazy. A lot of talented people have the wrong attitudes about work. A lot of, a lot of talented people get halfway down the road and then they don't have what it takes to go the distance. But here is the point. Each individual life is your individual life. Just like you want ownership, your children eventually have to have ownership. And tennis, the reason you play tennis and sports is because their own particular personality starts coming out. So I think you've gotten the message here, folks, that we do not need cookie-cutter tennis. We do not need any of us trying to dictate and perfect the way of doing things for our children. We, we've got to allow them to grow up and become the people who God meant for them to be because in the end they will be motivated by that. They will know that it is them, and they will know that uh, pretty much they can do it their way, and that that will take them all the way. And uh, they 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 are in charge of their their destiny now. 
we just and, and again, we're not saying to just let them go, but they have to have the structure. Absolutely, positively, that structure should not come from some organization that's centralized government like the USTA or or the ITA or these folks that are just destroying tennis. We need absolutely it to come from people that are close to your your child and uh, and and of course from the family structure. We'll be right back. This is Coach Chuck Creasy with American Tennis. Coach J.P. Weber of the We Coach Tennis Radio Show. In my 30 years experience in coaching tennis, I've never seen a better tennis training situation for children than Coach Creasy's total tennis training camps. Chuck Creasy has coached them and trained them in every arena from juniors to collegiate to professional tennis, and over 15,000 children have improved their games at his summer tennis camps. Find out more at ChuckCreasy.net. That's ChuckCreasy.net. This is Coach Chuck Creasy, and folks, go to chuckcreasy.net and see my new website and all of the opportunities that you have for some information. Not just do we have the American Tennis Radio Program, not just our camps, but folks, I'm doing some consultant work now, and I'm going to clubs, and I'm giving a lot of speeches, and I'm moving around and trying to get some of the word out there about how great the sport of tennis is and how best you can help your youngsters in your area learn to love this sport and get better. Go to ChuckCreasy.net and let, find out if I can help you out with your tennis in your community. And thanks for listening to American Tennis Now in our fifth year. And uh, when I prepare the programs uh, each week, I really do prepare it for parents and coaches and teachers out there. I know that there are some players that listen and then maybe just tennis enthusiasts that listen. But the point is I try to – the messages I'm trying to get across – hopefully are going to help you as a parent, you as a teacher, you as a coach, and give you some, some just, just some things to think about, about how best we all 
can pass on this great game of tennis and help young people learn. And, um, yeah, you know me by now. You know that I'm appalled by the way that uh, we've diluted, polluted, and prostituted the game of tennis by turning it over to the marketeers. And it's just become corporate. That's, That's all I can say. It's become corporate. And once you do that type of thing and you have the big brother mentality that you're doing it right and everybody's got to do it like you, uh, you're, you're in trouble. But I do, I primarily direct this to parents and coaches. And um, the last program, we talked about personality types of the youngster and how unique all children are. But to understand that all of them are not motivated by the same way. Um, by and, and if you'll go back and listen to my program, we talked about the different four different personality types, the, the sanguines who want fun, spontaneity, creativity, and uh, basically they shoot from the hip a lot. And then the cholerics who are control people, and they see things their way, and they believe they should be in charge, and they like to be in charge on the court, and it's a big deal for them to sort of control the movement, the action, the talk, the walk, and everything else. Then you have your melancholics who are uh, the detail people that rule out, you know, me being more sanguine than, hey, have you figured that one out yet? That I'm, every time I've taken this personality test, I'm pretty much sanguine uh, with everything I do. And there's been times where I've taken, if I look at it as a coach, you become more choleric and you become more control driven. But I'm a sanguine all the way with, gosh, I think out of 40 questions, I was like 22 sanguine and had about eight or nine choleric and some phlegmatic but this next the melancholic personality the detail people the people who want who believe everybody in the world would want to be like me if only they knew how you just keep getting it right he was uh if you the ultimate melancholic and i laughed till i cried was uh my kids making me watch that movie the uh incredibles <laughs> and and uh, the superheroes, when he was, had that nine-to-five job, his boss was the ultimate melancholic person that just trying to get it right all the time and not understanding why the guy couldn't get it right. But you know what I mean. And that's, that's the tough one for me to understand, but they are important too. Most of the time, your leaders, your leaders are the sanguine cholerics, but... They have the melancholics, the, the detail people, are great managers, number two people. They're number two people. But you need trailblazers as number one people. Then the phlegmatic people were the people who are the peacekeepers, get along with everybody. They roll with the punches. They um, basically don't make value judgments on much. They, uh, they live their life, and uh, if they do – try to control things they do it through withdrawal drawing energy and that's their method of controlling things but go see this it's again it's called the whole again conference by fred and florence Littower. and i boy i got it 25 years ago and it's been brilliant it's helped me in my coaching so so much so i've always since i learned about the personality types i have used it as a resource to, I mean, for doubles teams, come on, think about this. 
And again, let me go through the personality types and then talk about double steam. If you had, a, if the, the sanguine is more like the otter, they said the the uh, control person, the choleric or the choleric is the lion. The melancholic, the detailed person, is the beaver. They had the eager beaver, and then the golden retriever would represent the phlegmatic. But think about Paul. Here, look. Think, think about how this has helped me in putting doubles teams together. For example, um, if you put two sanguines together, two fun-loving, shoot from the hip people who weren't good with details, you would get they would get great wins and really crummy losses. If you put two cholerics or cholerics control freaks together, what do you think would happen? No, they would fight with each other so much over everything, and uh, ultimately that doesn't work. It's just like two cholerics marrying each other. If you're a choleric, don't marry another choleric. Do you hear me? <laughs> don't marry another choleric if you're a choleric. If you're an alpha man, uh, if you're an alpha woman, you can marry, you bet, you're going to have to marry an alpha alpha man or a phlegmatic, but it ain't going to work. And a lot of times it's going to be a tough deal. And, uh, likewise, the other way. <laughs> so, anyhow, uh, folks, um, I'm sure there are books on marriage that you can read about these things, but that's just the philosophy I'm throwing out there right now. Uh, the melancholics, the detailed people, if you have two detailed people who are number, they'd be good number two people, the, the knickknackers who are trying to do everything right, trying to do everything right, well, you would never have a bad loss, but you would never loosen up and get good wins either. You'd never get good wins unless the other person goofed up enough. Uh, doing with the melancholic, always remember, doing, not doing things wrong, never, ever, ever, a hundred times in a row makes one thing right. You cannot take ground by holding ground. You have to live on the edge a little bit and go for things in this sport. Two melancholics together. So if you're a melancholic, find that sanguine for a doubles partner. Then the two phlegmatics playing together. Well, let's see. Do you want to serve? I don't care. Do you? I don't know. I don't care what you want. To, what do you do? I'll return. Well, no. Okay. All right. That's fine. What do you want to do? Well, I don't care. Do you want to do that? Well, I don't care. Maybe I, and that's sort of the way it gets sometimes with two phlegmatics. Well, listen, that's an extreme, but but pretty much those are personality types that I gave the last time. But I want to talk about allowing your youngsters to just be who they're supposed to be. I used to teach leadership classes uh, at Clemson. Let's see, golly. I taught seven or eight years. I taught 25 semesters when I first got there because all coaches used to have to teach. And then they sort of frowned on coaches teaching. Can you believe that? We had a few coaches around uh, the area in some major schools that were cheating and giving grades. And do you believe this, that once that happened, it was sort of, I call it the shoe bomber syndrome or a knee-jerk reaction they just said, oh, coaches can't teach. It could be construed or it might look like coaches are giving grades. And that was disgusting to me because I took such pride in the classes I was teaching. But my last seven or eight years at Clemson, I did get to teach a leadership class before the same thing happened, actually. 
But here's how I started out my leadership class. I would go into the class, and I would say, okay, we're going to talk about the perfect way to be a leader. And I would have the kids move their desks into four groups, four corners of the room, four groups. I said, now I want you to get together and talk about who you think your leader is in this group. And just figure it out. I don't care what you – and I would, and they would go talking, and some of them didn't talk, some of them did. But I said, okay, about a minute to go, you got to figure this out. And now they put the crunch on and figured out one person, the one person. Usually it was the talkative person or the person was the least shy. I said, okay, now I want you to do this. <clears throat> We're going to have an experiment, and we need the leader to step up good at what they do. But everybody contributes here. And then I would get up in the middle of the room, and I made a paper airplane. I said, you know, one of the things everybody's unique at is their own paper airplanes and how they make it. And I made my perfect model that sails at least 45 feet when you throw it. And I made it, and I showed them, and I sailed that across the room. And I said, as you can see, I like the way I make my paper airplanes. Now, all of you may have different ways of making your paper airplanes, but go ahead and do it. Now, what we're going to do is a little experiment here, and just remember the leader, we need your leadership. We need your independent leadership. Figure this out. You've got to get this right. I want everybody, I'm going to give you three minutes to make your paper airplane, and I put them under clock. I go, okay, ready, and go, and they would make their airplanes. Now they're frantically making it. I said, now, leaders, leaders, do you understand? You've got all your team's paper airplanes, and I want you to line them up here on your desk, get it right. And then I went to the middle of the room, right equidistant from all of the four groups, and I put a big, I go, oh, what are we going to use for an airport here to see whose works the best? I looked around, then I got the trash can, and I put, came out, and I put it on top of the desk. And I said, I want you, here's the goal. Leaders, the goal is to get those paper airplanes into this trash can, all right? And whoever gets the most into this trash can wins. And then I put the clock. I put more pressure on them. I go, okay, now we're going to do the clock. We're going to do this all. You've got to do it all within one minute and 30 seconds, and are you ready? Ready, go. <laughs> and so the kids and the leaders would be trying to sell these paper airplanes, and they wouldn't hit, and they'd crash into the side of the trash can. And then this one old, this one dude, this one kid, this, this laid-back guy says, what? Just get him in there. And he, of course, solves the problem. He takes the five or six pieces of paper airplane, crunches them up into a ball, and tosses every one of them perfectly into the airport. And I said, all right, who wins? Who got the job done here? I said, now this is a little experiment. By the way, this was my wife made this up the first year I taught leadership classes. And uh, it was it was really, really interesting. But the point was to teach the kids that, you know what, your style has got to be the style that you, you use, and your style has to be the best way to do things. And if you've ever seen the nine-dot 
and then I would do the nine dot experiment on the blackboard. You would put three dots going horizontally, then right under that would make three dots horizontally, then three dots. So you would have three rows of dots going horizontally, but they were also going vertically where they were lined up underneath it. And then you basically say, I want you to now draw these dots in width. Without picking up your pencil, I want you to connect all the dots, but you cannot cross another line. And they go on and on and on and on and on. And then somebody in the back of the room, I got it. And you would bring them up. And it's impossible to do if you stay inside of the box and the dots. But it's very easy to do once you allow those straight lines to, like you'd start from the middle uh, to the left middle dot and you connect it with the top middle. And then you go way off the chart, then come back down and connect the right row of dots. And then you go straight up. And, and basically, you can, with four, without picking up your paper, you can get it done. So I talked about getting the job done, and I talk a lot about in leadership. We want people in leadership that do right things and make mistakes instead of managers who do things right and don't make as many mistakes. And, and listen, folks, number one, people have to be trailblazers. And uh, you, you know, listen, your child or your player's, may be wired such that that they are manager, manager type. My daughter, my oldest daughter, is so good with details. I would want her to run my business any day of the week. And, you know, maybe she'll develop those creative skills. But, my golly, does she get things right. And um, whereas my baby daughter, I think she's going to be more of a shoot from the hip. She sees doing the right thing instead of doing things right now. I don't want to backtrack too much, but I've always talked on this program about how much more important it is to do the right thing instead of just doing things the right way. Do you see how the computers have messed us up and how systems in only one pathway messes you up and it really puts you in a box, the USTA box is to do things right. Well, you might, you're doing the, a lot of the wrong things the right way. That won't get you anywhere. Look, it's best to do the right things the right way if you could. Number two would be to do the right thing the wrong way. Then you learn how to do it the right way. The fact of the matter is you always have to, you always have to be bad before you're good. You always have to have a breakdown before a breakthrough in anything you do. So we're, we need to teach the kids the right thing to do, not just doing things the right way. Okay, you have four situations, the right thing the right way, the right thing the wrong way, the wrong thing the right way, and guess what? The wrong thing the wrong way. Which, what is a wrong thing the wrong, the right way? Well, doing the wrong thing the right way is as simple as giving participation trophies or being too easy on kids and not holding kids accountable to a standard, not of detail, but a standard of effort and a standard of doing, doing the right thing is to give your heart 
but you might not give your heart and get the reward, and that is the wrong thing done the right way. So, folks, nobody likes to talk about the right things to do, but, but we need to do it. You know, the American way is a free way to excellence. It's a free way to excellence. Excellence is our bar. It is not an express way to mediocrity. It is not an express way to do everything like everybody else does. We have to, golly, you know, so often I'll have a player that gets in trouble a lot, and I've done this enough with, I've coached long enough that I'm always attracted to the kids that live on the edge a little bit. And I often use the expression that your son or your daughter's like, they're like a Ferrari. They're always going to be in a shop with the hood up. Or I'll say, I'd rather try to tame a roaring tiger than to inspire a timid pussycat. I would rather have the kid with the big engine and the big heart and the big ambition and have them mess up over and over and over and over again in learning how to do the right thing the right way instead of taking just just falling in line cookie cutter. But anyhow, so folks, don't mandate, don't overregulate. Be patient. Let your children be who they are. I, I want to read, before we run out of so much time today, I really want to read um, an article called Breakdowns Before Breakthroughs. And I meant to get to this the last time. But when our children fail, as long as they're failing with gusto and they're, they're failing with putting their heart on the line, and, and yeah, it's look. Competing is much more than just being a hard trier, too. Don't don't think, oh, I did my best. I'm a hard trier. That, that look, our kids need to be trying to win, fair, square. But they need to be trying to win. It's not just about being a hard trier. But whenever our youngsters go out on the court and they give their best, and they and they come up short, there's a good chance that there will be a deep feeling of deep pain, a pain from the committed failure that they've just given. All ki- think about it. All kids would give their best if giving your best guarantees success. Now, look, giving your best enhances the chances of doing well, but it does not guarantee success. Now, if you dare and if you care, pain when you lose, will always be there. But pain and joy will always be there. Extremes in pain and extremes in joy. There's nothing that feels better than when a youngster learns how to lay everything on the line and it works out for them. The worst thing we can do, though, is to tell our kids, oh, don't worry about it. Just have fun. Just you know, If your youngster is a competitor, they're not going to like losing. And um, we need competitors in this country, but Here's the point about winning and losing. When they give their heart, breakdowns will always happen before breakthroughs. So here's the name of the article. If you like this, I'd be glad to shoot this to you in an email or something. My email is chuckcreasy at gmail at gmail.com. Chuckcreasy at gmail. Go to my website, chuckcreasy.net, K-R-I-E-S-E, and it has a lot of information there. 
So breakdowns before breakthrough. It's it's probably my favorite saying because it's been proven so many times in my coaching career for sure, folks. I don't know why, you know, that it is, though, but so many times uh, you'll see and you'll have good athletes that go through this terrible, terrible breakdown and you think, are they going to quit the sport or whatever? And They're at the brink of disaster. And if you remember Agassiz's book, Agassiz said he was going up to hang – about three or four times he put his rackets up for sale and things. He was going to be done with it because the pain was so much, and then he had a breakthrough. And this is what happens. You're right at the brink of disaster, and then suddenly something happens. It's the gut-wrenching and the heartbreaking setbacks, you know, the type where you just feel like it's not worth it anymore. I've been given my best. I'm not getting any feedback. I'm not growing, going. I'm not growing forward really puts you at a place where you got to make a decision. Now, the hardship and the pain is there to separate. It's a wall that separates a youngster or separates a person who's going to go all the way from those, I hate, it's not just timid souls, but those people who are not supposed to go all the way. Again, I, re, I remember with movie Whiplash. Go back and watch Whiplash. Not with your children. Too much cussing. Boy, it's a controversial film to a lot of people, but I just love it because it really does show the depth that this coach was, uh, music coach was trying to get out of this drummer kid. Whiplash, go back and see it, folks. But here's here's my take on it. My take on it is that the pain, even though we fear it so much, you know, folks, it's really the critical ingredient for the last little bit that pushes you through to the breakthrough that you've trained for for so long. It pushes us through to excellence. My belief is we don't have excellence right now in our country. We're, greedy, we're breeding mediocrity in so many different levels because we don't allow the kids to dive in and care enough, and we don't allow them to go through the pain. I always tell my youngsters, I, I, look, I want deep, heart-wrenching pain, but I don't want just anger like, you know, pretty boy, little sissy anger. I want deep hurting. That. The pain will change you. The pain will make you go take another look. But really, the whole scenario is something we don't need to be afraid of. But if you go through it a couple, three, four times, there's just a tendency to withdraw energy. And in um, people, it, I can go through that whole scenario, but you'll see it often when a youngster loses seven, six, and the third, and then the next match they go out and they lose one and one. They they get broken. They better get them right back on the court if that happens. But um, sometimes the pain of a loss is, you know, it just makes us want to run away. You know, we, we think that we've given our best. We just haven't gotten enough back, and we don't see the, the purpose in the whole thing. But when this pressure comes, a lot of times we fail to just deal, dump, uh, excuse me, dive in there and work through it and uh, we withdraw energy. Um, of course, if the person keeps diving into the pressure, if they keep diving into the pressure, what happens, it's one of those things where you just, it's sort of like the old Rocky thing where he finally wasn't afraid of Apollo Creed. He goes, you ain't so bad. You're not so bad. And I think I can do this. The coach's worst fear is for the confidence to be broken the person to give up, to go away. 
you know, that just like in the movie Whiplash, uh, the guy said, no, the real guy, the real deal will never give up. They don't give up. They go back to the well again and again and again. Now, all of us know that if at first you don't succeed, you try, try again. In the older generations, we had to try, try again if we wanted anything to be better in our lives. This generation, though, gets lots of rewards, lots of participation trophies. They don't have to try, try again a lot. And a lot of times we don't hold their feet to the fire. So let me go on with this article. I truly believe that the mental and emotional obstacles of today's athletes, really they are the battle and more than the physical considerations of the physical battles. I mean, the, the most, most athletes who were formerly afraid of, try, uh, of failing, uh, today's athletes are more afraid of high success. In other words, I'm saying that the kids don't fail now because we don't allow them to. We always put a pillow under the rear end. What our kids are afraid of is the fear of the responsibility of having to achieve again and more pressure, and they're afraid that they'll live up to it. A lot of times they'll take a convenient loss instead of hanging in there. Many just feel like 80% of everything is okay, and you know they hold back at the 80% point. Every seminar I give, it's how to get past that 80% point are very much the, the good to great uh, scenario. The dominant factor for success is not solely based on the physical part of the game. In another time when opportunities were not as abundant, lots of chances to succeed was the key to building confidence. We just gave the kids more and more chances. More important today is, is in trying to get the athletes to buy into the emotional responsibilities that go along with winning and being a role model and stepping up to the plate again and again and doing the right thing. They will grow into it. If you care a lot, it will hurt a lot when you lose. When you care a lot, it will feel great when you win. The whole key to the puzzle is to keep caring, keep caring, and keep engaging. The breakdown is always closer than you think. Two of my favorite sayings that I've used with athletes always are, never let a win go to your head, never lost go to your heart. If you handle it properly, the win should go to your heart for confidence. The loss should go to your head for learning a tough balance folks it, it is a tough balance also i like the saying that you're in the process of winning or losing every day of your life and it has very little to do with a win or a loss i say that at the end of my program every week because that's truly what our lives should be about in the process of winning or losing the losses can be wins if we learn the wins wins could be losses <laughs> if we don't handle them right, but wins should be for confidence, losses should be for learning. No matter how it feels, if you are having heart heartbreak and breakdown, you're very close to a breakthrough. And I and folks with our kids, I'm gonna go back to the first statement that I made today when I started the program. Kids are not born and neither are we doing the right thing. We have to learn how to do the right thing by doing it over and over and over again. It's a painful process, but we've got to stay with it. We have got to make sure that we allow youngsters 
to be free to be who they are. We give them guidelines, but they build their engine. We help them build their steering wheel. But remember, it has to be a freeway. It's got to be theirs. There's pain that goes along with it. But if they learn to hang in there, they get brave. That's how they get brave. Courage is only a coward that's been backed to in, into a corner enough times. Then they then they finally get brave. But folks, we, uh, you know, uh, all I can say is that this sport of tennis teaches us everything we need to know. Keep our kids in it, and let's let's help dive in there and get the USTA to see that these abbreviated scoring systems and making it easier to pick up also makes it easier to put down. Hard to pick up, hard to put down. Easy to pick up, easy to put down. And the kids become proud of themselves, and that's truly how tennis becomes a lifelong love. God bless each and every one of you. We will see you next week. reminding you that you're in the process of winning or losing every day of your life. Folks, it has very little to do with a win or a loss. It has to do with growing in confidence from those wins and learning when you lose. And then then it's a win-win deal all the time. See you next week on American Tennis. Opinions stated by various contributors to the UR Tennis Network and its programming are not to be considered as endorsed by the UR Tennis Network. Participants are encouraged to use their own discernments and draw their own conclusions. All information, products, and services offered by the UR Tennis Network are for personal use only. The UR Tennis Network does not confirm nor deny the validity or accuracy of information contained within the network. Any products or services provided for should be used solely for entertainment purposes. We emphasize the idea of keeping an open mind and not construing the products, services, or data as factual.